Our first question, uh, while reading your latest blog, my thoughts turned to the past and present of my knowledge regarding how psychological trauma is reacted to. Back in the day, the 50s and 60s, when a trauma a traumatic event happened, we as students dealt with it and moved on without great damage to our psyches. Today, I am puzzled by how much coddling is administered to try and diminish the trauma of the same events we dealt with. Is there a place for all this coddling, or are we too weak to handle reality? No, I think what you're, what you're hearing is a philosophy that's intended to weaken people. And I would encourage you, if you haven't read the book, get the book called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Uh, it's a well-written book by two actual liberal psychologists, but they have gone down the trail of following the evidence and the principles. And what they document is that the historic wisdom from all the great sages of history is being denied by the new, new woke philosophies that actually are damaging... Um, um, children and developing minds and making them weaker and less capable of handling life's responsibilities. So um, you're exactly right. So I encourage you to get that resource and check it out. By coming to this earth as a man, didn't Christ do a role reversal with Satan? Uh, no, I don't believe he did. He came to earth to take up Adam's position to become the second Adam and resolve and fix the problem that Adam inflicted upon this human species. But I don't see any role reversal with Satan. Um, by, by killing Christ, Satan revealed that he was the murderer, not God. It is Satan that murders uh, the image of God. And you're exactly right. Satan is the murderer from the beginning, and he demonstrates that he is the source of death, and he has the, wields the power of death, according to Scripture. And, much, and, and so, to the degree people believe that God is the source of inflicted death, they need to revisit that question. I have a blog coming out this Thursday that will actually differentiate that question um, and document uh, how we understand some Scriptures that seem to appear that God wields the power of death, but God actually doesn't. The Bible tells us that he... He, capital H, is made strong in our weakness. How does that work? Is it because we turn it over to him? I think there's a slight misremembrance of the text. God is not made strong in our weakness. We are made strong in our weakness, not him. And it's when we are weak, then we are strong. Because when we are weak, we don't rely on our own human strength. We recognize that our human strength is weakness. And we rely on his strength, and his strength makes us strong. So that's really what that means. I have been trying to study Leviticus, operative word, trying. <laughs> one, of, um, many, one of many questions I have is, why was God so specific about washing the organs of the uh, sacrificial animal? It all seems so gross to me, and I'm trying to find the love of God in this book. How, and how it talks about a pleasant aroma of burning flesh. Well, it's actually the pleasant aroma of burning fat. I guess fat is part of the flesh. But I think of the flesh more as the, as the muscle rather than the fat. But um, it's really the burning fat. And you have to remember, the only way to understand Leviticus is what we read in our class today. That we should lift a little here and a little there. Or it should be said in the whole, the whole, students should view the word as a whole, comparing all the parts of the grand central theme. That Leviticus cannot be understood by itself. You have to understand it in the grand setting. And what's the grand setting? that God is adding layers and layers of instructions. Yes? Once I listened to the whole book of Leviticus on tape while I was driving all at once, uh -huh. and what impressed me was God's patience. Okay, so they see God's patience in the book. You can certainly see that. He just keeps trying to work with us. So the question about this is, though this is all theater, folks. 
It's all an acted out way to teach them a larger reality. It's all metaphor. There is nothing about salvation that happens in these animal sacrifices. And so the washing of the organs, this is symbolic, okay? The organs are the inner person, symbolically, and we are to be washed in the Holy Spirit where the inner heart, inner motives are washed in the water of the Holy Spirit, the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. So that's symbolically the washing. The burning away the fat from the inner organs is what's burned. Fat is the symbol of sin. And so when we are washed and cleansed, then the old carnal nature is burned away. And so burning away the fat, and it's a pleasing aroma for the Lord to burn the sin out of our lives, the rebelliousness, the distrust, the lies. And that's, it's just symbolic way of describing the process of cleansing us in the inner person from the rebelliousness and sin. And so, but it was all theater. It had no saving power. It was to teach that. It was also to teach the revulsion that we should have in our hearts towards sin. That if you actually had to take, and we'll try to make this in human culture, since we don't actually live in an agrarian culture and we don't actually keep herds, but in the human culture, you had, after some sin, needed to come to church with your pet kitten or pet puppy, and you had to confess your sins on your pet, and then you had to cut, look in your pet's eyes as they're trusting and looking up at you, and you have to cut your pet's throat and watch the, you know, see, there's the, what, what, what emotion did you just experience? <laughs> revulsion. Yeah. And that's what it was for. It was to embed in them a revulsion and disgust at sin so that they would not have to keep repeating doing this. It was to teach them that sin kills. The priest would not cut the throat. The sinner who was confessing cut the throat. Sin kills. That's what it was trying to do. So you would be disgusted with it and want to give it up. Okay? So this was what the part of the teaching was all about. So the fact that you find some offense in this, good. It was designed to teach them on a visceral level to, to not participate in sin anymore. In this, Sabbath, in this past Sabbath note, there is another set of books mentioned, Revelation 20, 12, the great white throne judgment, the books from which the wicked are judged according to the deeds um, recorded there. Isn't it character, not deeds? Uh, Revelation 20, 12 explicitly states it's the book of life, the place in heaven where God keeps the sleeping souls, um, where individualities and characters are recorded. But isn't the great white throne judgment after the millennium, after the third heaven, uh, not in heaven? So you're exactly right on all points. The, uh, the book is, and why, why the, the, does it say deeds, but also the book of life, and, and they're judged by what's recorded there? Because if you don't experience a rebirth with a new heart and right right a new, a new heart and right spirit, if that doesn't happen for you, then what gets embedded into your character? Not just acts, but those acts become symbolic representations of the same motives that lead to the acts. Your heart gets solidified in rebelliousness, wickedness, whatever you want to call it. And so this is a symbolic way of describing that. And this is why Jesus said, by your words you will be acquitted, by your words you will be condemned in the end. Because we will all be judged by whether we have been reborn, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have new hearts and right spirits, or we have closed Christ out, and we have solidified ourselves in rebellion and selfishness. And so you're exactly right. The book and revelation that judges, that people are judged by, is simply the accurate recording of who they are in heart and mind. I had thought that while listening to your last lesson, Jesus coming to earth as man and dying and rising again is evidence that God had already forgiven us. What do you think? I, I like it. This, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If God was holding a grudge against us, he wouldn't have sent his son 
to save us. But you're exactly right. It is evidence that we were already forgiven, but God's extension of forgiveness from his heart does not resolve the problem of sin that operates inside us. Someone had to come and cleanse us from that problem. And Jesus came to cleanse us from the problem, not just simply and simply and only communicate God's grace and forgiveness. That was part of it because if we distrusted him, we wouldn't open the heart to him. But opening the heart to a physician you trust to cure you of a condition does not cure you of the condition unless the physician has a remedy to the condition. And Christ came to both win us to trust and also procure what was necessary to cleanse us of the condition. Uh, in the E.G. White notes for Sabbath lesson number five, there were a couple of statements that I hope you will, uh, will help us understand. Uh, when Satan tempts you, breathe not a word of doubt or darkness. If you talk out your feelings, every doubt you express not only reacts upon yourself, but is a seed that will germinate and bear fruit in the life of others. And it may be impossible to counteract the influence of your words. And they say, seems to oppose being honest and open with counselors. And then a second quote, do not let your troubles to, do not tell your troubles to fellow mortals, but carry everything to God in prayer. Make it a rule, make it a rule, <laughs> never to utter one word of doubt or discouragement. How do we reconcile such statements with being open, honest with counselors, pastors, etc.? And this is where, again, same principle, whether you're reading her or reading scripture. Do we take a, a little statement, lift it out of context, and make a rule out of it? It says that rule, it should be a rule. Should we do that? Or should we read a little larger in context? And if you read just a little larger in context, it becomes quite plain. I'm going to read both of these with a little bit larger context. You'll pick up on where the quote was, but you'll listen before and after. How many by their actions, if not their words, are saying, the Lord does not mean, mean this for me. Perhaps he loves others, but he does not love me. All of this is harming your own soul. For every word of doubt you utter is inviting Satan's temptation. It is strengthening in you the tendency to doubt, and it is grieving you from the ministering angels. When Satan tempts you, breathe not a word of doubt or darkness. If you choose to open your, uh, the door to his suggestions, your mind will be filled with distrust and rebellious questioning. If you talk out your feelings, every doubt and expression, and, and if you talk, talk out your feelings, every doubt you express, not only reacts upon yourself, but it is a seed that will germinate and bear fruit in the life of others. And it may be impossible to counteract the influence of your words. You yourself may be able to recover from the season of temptation and from the snare of Satan, but others who have been swayed by your influence may not be able to escape from the unbelief, so forth and so on. So do you hear a different message now? This is not somebody who is like Job, necessarily having questions and seeking honest answers. This is somebody who is discouraged and feeling um, pitiful about themselves. I'm not as good as everybody else. Uh, oh, woe is me. And they're not actually open to truth at this point. And to just verbalize more and more, this is um, a principle that as you express things, the words you express not only reveal what you're thinking, but they reinforce those things back upon yourself. And so she is uh, talking um, uh, here, don't reinforce the doubts when you actually, and these are people that are already converted, and so they already know the truth. In other words, if you're having feelings of worthlessness, is there anybody in here that actually has no worth? No, no it's a lie. So the feelings, um, if you give voice to those feelings, they will strengthen the lie. 
That doesn't mean you should ignore the feeling. It means you should trace it. I'm having feelings of worthlessness. I don't know what to do with it. How can I resolve it? I know it's not true, and I want to resolve that feeling. That's a different thing. She's not talking about that. She's talking about voicing it without searching for truth. That's how this was talking about. And then voicing it to others who you may have influence over who don't understand your struggle that you could then discourage them. And that's where the, the next portion of the quote goes. All have trials, griefs to bear. Temptation hard to resist. Do not tell your troubles to your fellow mortals, but carry everything to God in prayer. Make it a rule never to utter one word of doubt or discouragement. You can do much to brighten the life of others and strengthen their efforts by words of hope and holy cheer. Now, here's the, here's the just continuing right on. Notice the context. There is many a brave soul sorely pressed by temptation, almost ready to faint in the conflict with self and with the powers of evil. Do not discourage such a one with hard, with, in, in such a hard struggle. So she's not actually saying don't go to somebody with counsel when you're struggling. She's saying when you're struggling, don't put it on somebody else who is about to collapse and overburden them with your struggle. That's what she's saying. It's a big difference. What's the source? Steps to Christ, page 119. Don't we all fancy though find someone else who's weaker than us at the time to complain to to get more sympathy? Oh, he said, don't we all have a tendency when we're feeling down to find somebody who's even worse than us to get empathy and sympathy and uh, maybe, even, uh, maybe even talk to them so they'll actually be, function worse than us so we can feel better about ourselves. <laughs> And, and that's what she'd be talking against, that very thing. My grandpa always said, if you feel bad, find somebody to help, and you'll feel better. But that doesn't mean there isn't wisdom in counselors, that when you're actually having struggle, you can't figure out the problem to go to somebody who can help you work the problem. She, th these two quotes are not people who are working the problem. They're people who are just complaining without seeking solution. There's a difference. Um, love to hear your thoughts about Peter in Acts 9, 32 to 41, that he healed Ananias and resurrected Dorcas without seeking their consents. <laughs> Same as Jesus resurrecting Lazarus without getting a signed consent first. No, it says, it says actually, while consent is not possible. I thought Jesus respected our free will. I understand the healings and resurrections are good, but same as salvation offered by Jesus. However, we still have to accept salvation before we're saved. Any double standard? No, there's no double standard because you've mixed, you've just at the very end conflated two things or brought two things together that don't mix. You've conflated physical healing from disease and even resurrection of the sleep death with salvation. They are not the same. Jesus healed 10 lepers. How many came back? One. The implication being only one experienced salvation. And the point being, physical healing does not equate with salvation. And so um, physical healing, you don't necessarily have to consent to. But I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be physically healed. <laughs> I do know some who don't want to be emotionally healed. If Jesus was our substitute on the cross, then why do we die? Plus, why did Jesus only die three days when the consequences of sin were everlasting? Good questions. Great questions. First answer is, we don't die. If you believe Jesus. 
what did Jesus say? All those who believe in me will die. never die. Okay? This is the distinction between the sleep, pause, pause in life, your computer runs out of power and goes to sleep. It is not dead. It is just waiting for power. That's what everybody does that we call death. They're all waiting for power to be powered back up in one of two resurrections. The death that's a wage of sin is at the end of the thousand years and there's no resurrection from that death. That's annihilation, non-existence. And so nobody's ever died yet. So Jesus died as our substitute on the cross so that we would not die that eternal death. That's, that's why. Now, the three days one's a great one. For all those who have the penal legal model, this is such a great question because in their view, somebody has to pay the penalty. And the penalty is an eternal death. Jesus did not pay that penalty. He did not die the eternal death. He died and rose again. Why? Because he destroyed at the cross the cause of death. And that's what he said. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And, and our view is that he destroyed death. And destroying death is not the same thing as being destroyed by death. <coughs> and, and if you have the penal view, he has to pay the death penalty, which is eternal. And he didn't do it. He, he rose again. And so there's a tension there, and then they will get real agitated. Anybody holds the penal view, you say that, they'll get real upset. No, no, but, but he thought he was going to die. He, he was willing to die. Well, yes, he was. I will agree with that completely. I agree that he was willing to die eternally, but he did not think he was dying eternally. That's a lie. Mm -hmm. yeah. He told his disciples repeatedly he was going to the cross, and he was going to rise on the third day. He told them repeatedly that he was rising on the third day. He knew because he understood design law that he was going to destroy the cause of death at the cross. And after having destroyed the cause of death, he would rise again because it, it, was, it was gone from the humanity that he, he took upon himself. So th th that penal view, it, it affects the, the, the theology so deeply on so many levels, but it's a great question. It gives you opportunity to, to work through that. When did the different races develop? In my view, and I'm going to answer that straight, that was, at, that was at the Tower of Babel. God divided for a single purpose, to slow the, the rebellion of sin so that the entire world would not come together in a unified worldwide rebellion against heaven that they did before the flood. And so if you read Revelation, and it talks about a, a power that once was, was not, but will come again. This is the unified worldwide rebellion against God that existed prior to the flood, was destroyed at the flood, has not existed since the flood, but will come again out of the great abyss and exist right before, and it comes to its destruction. The whole world unites again, and the power, all the nations together, all the world together, all the tribes, all the peoples together that are not saved will unite again in a worldwide coalition to rebel against heaven, and they come to their destruction. And that's that, that's it. but yeah, that's why he did it, to, 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 to slow the, the rebellion and to give time for the plan of salvation to be worked out. So when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, he will then come to claim that as his own, Christ's obstacle lesson 69. How do you envision that the gospel, truth and love of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations and then the end will come, Matthew 24, 14. Could the three angels' message of Revelation 14 be referring to literal angels? No, I don't believe the three angels is referring to literal heavenly beings like Gabriel. No, I think it's the message. And uh, the way I, I see it coming about is that God is right now having his agents hold back the four winds of strife. Revelation chapter 7, an angel came telling the angels the four winds hold back the four winds of strife until the people of God, the servants of God, excuse me, are sealed in their forehead. 
in the servants of God in scripture, you will find text after text after text. God is, in one, one in Amos, it's famous. God does nothing unless he first reveals it to his servants, the, the prophets. The servants are the prophets of God. These are not prognosticators primarily. These are the people who have a message from God for the people. And, and Revelation 7 says there, there are 12,000 from 12 tribes, symbolically, it's all symbol taken from the sanctuary, around the, the sanctuary, the four corners of the earth, east, west, north, south, God has his people at all four corners of the earth that need to be sealed until they are sealed in their forehead. And what's sealing in the forehead? So settled into the truth, they cannot be moved intellectually and spiritually. They are sealed, they're settled. That group of people, when they are sealed and settled, then the four winds begin to loose. And when the four begin, winds begin to loose, we have a terrible time of trouble that has never happened before, which will shake people out of their rat wheel basis of life. They'll ask what's happening in the world. And the witnesses of God are on the scene in all corners of the world to tell the true witness. And from their witness, a great multitude from a nation, tribe, kindred, and people will be saved. And if you follow the text along, this is what I see happening. And so I think the, uh, that God is waiting and holding because his people that will give the witness for him so that the great multitude can be saved are still not sealed, still not settled. Because why? Because they're still teaching an imperial, legal, Roman payment, intercessory role of Jesus pleading to his father not to kill us version of God. That's why. And he's waiting for the truth or angel's message that requires that we come back to worship him as creator and judge him to be right. And when we settle into this eternal truth, then the final events happen. Can a sinner become righteous while still being a sinner? Was Job a sinner when God said, Job is perfect and righteous in all his ways. There's no one on the earth like him. Yes. Was he a sinner or not a sinner anymore? Yes. Well, then there's your answer. Once a sinner, always a sinner. <laughs> Doesn't mean you're always have the same heart. He says, once a sinner, always a sinner. Just one that's been healed. So would you say once a, a cancer patient, always a cancer patient? Yes, he's had... Even if the cancer's in remission? He's still been a cancer patient. Yep, so the, but now the cancer's in remission and he's cancer-free. Yes, but he's still historically a cancer patient. Mm -hmm. So once a human, always a human. <laughs> it says once a human, always a human. It says thank you for your po powerful Bible study. I had a conversation about sin. I was presented... I was presented that, maybe I'm presenting, that God has to make sin available. Oh, somebody presented to them that God had to make sin available in order for Satan to access it. No, untrue. Um, if God didn't make it available, Satan could not have chosen it, blah, 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 blah. So, no. Um, God had to create a universe in which beings were free to make choices where we're not robots. Okay? That's all. So, without freedom, that there could be no choice to sin or rebel or go your own way. There's, there's truth in that. So God created the atmosphere of love and freedom, but God did not create sin and give and say, there's a bottle of sin over here and you're free to choose it if you want. That's not how it works. God creates liberty and, and it says in, in scripture that he was perfect in all his ways until the day sin was found in him, in him. It doesn't say until the day he found sin on the tree where God left it and took some. <laughs> and that's not what happened. So no, I, I, so, but there is this, there is this um, non-Christian theology out there that's taught that God needed Adam and Eve to sin so that the intelligent pre, 
fleshly spirits that inhabit the spirit world could have human bodies to inhabit so that they could ultimately, uh, in the human body, be tempted and overcome and ultimately be glorified in the end. There is this non-Christian theology that's taught um, in, in a church um, that, that says that they are you know, part of the latter day of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Statements to ponder versus a question. God does not destroy, he lets go. I, I don't know what the abbreviation here means. Satan is the destroyer. Our paradigms may need to shift with godly wisdom, of course. Old Testament destruction, carterizing as you call it, was accomplished, was accomplished by Satan and his angels. No. Incorrect. The flood may be the only exception. Examples, Job, death of the angel, uh, death angel in Egypt, Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a common a common attempt to remove God from the role of putting people in the grave. And it's, and it's seriously flawed. It, it does not have any cre- credibility in my view at all. It denies the actual tenor of scripture, but it actually denies the, the, what, what, is working, what is happening. For instance, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, understand Satan is working to destroy. Satan's goal is not to kill a few soldiers. Satan's goal is to prevent Messiah from coming. This is the landscape of the Old Testament. He wants to stop Messiah. He wants to destroy the human avenue through whom Messiah is going. He knows who it is now. It's Jacob's descendants. He's working to destroy them. He's got them all involved in Baal worship. He's going to harden their hearts like he did the people before the flood so that nobody will work with God. This is his plan, and he's, and he's working toward it. God sends Elijah to call the people back to the true Yahweh worship to get rid of the Baal worship. And at this context where God is trying to stop the infection that will harden the hearts and prevent people from being loyal to him, Satan, Satan inspires Ahab to send troops to destroy Elijah. In that context, huh, Satan suddenly kills the troops that are coming to destroy Elijah? No, that doesn't work at all. But that's what some people will try to argue, that God just removed his protective hand, and and that was Satan's fire that came down and destroyed those troops. It was not. It was God acting. But again, he just put him to sleep. They'll raise him one of two resurrections. Same with Uzzah touching the ark. And on and on it goes to the Old Testament. Now, you can find some circumstances where Satan did do that. In the book of Job, where God did remove his hand and gave Satan freedom to act and fire came down and destroyed and, and it was reported that God did it when we know in that context it wasn't God doing it. And this is why you can't have a rule that applies to all circumstance. You actually have to look at the situation and circumstance and determine, is this God acting? Is this Satan acting? Is this the human acting? Is this God being blamed for God, Satan's actions as in the first chapter of Job? Is this God being blamed for human actions as when Saul falls on his own sword and then later it's reported that God put him to death? I mean, there's all these different types of descriptions happening, and uh, and I think it's um, I think it's rather I think it's the people who do this they have a good heart, they want to put God in the best light, and they don't ever want God to be the source of death. But they also conflate that this thing, first death experience, is death. It's not. It's simply putting people to sleep. God kills no one, but He does put people to sleep, and He will raise them out from that sleep, and it just pauses them briefly in time and wakens them again. So that's my view of that. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have provided everything we need for salvation. Give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us hearts that love you and others, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name, amen.